Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for match three of our sports bracket. This week, we will be discussing 2000's Remember the Titans, as well as 2002's Bend It Like Beckham. One of these is a exaggerated, over-the-top exploration of various forms of othering in culture that keeps you from being able to live your best life that has some truly cartoonish villains, and the other one is Bend It Like Beckham. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> and being mean. They both have the elements of camp in their own way. Yes. I should also say that we're just going to use football for both of these films, so just figure out via context clues, people. It's just going to be easier for everyone that way. Yep. If you're confused, football is the one where they use their feet. You're not helping. I'm not. Let's go ahead and dive into Remember the Titans. In 1971, tensions are high in the town of Alexandria, Virginia. The high school is being integrated, and to ease tension, Herman Boone, a black man, is hired as the head coach of the football team, leapfrogging over Bill Yost. Neither of them is happy with the situation, but compromise for their community and players, respectively. The racial tensions extend to the players, and the beginning of summer training is rough. Boone acts like a drill sergeant, running the team ragged and forcing the two groups of players to come together. By the end of training camp, the team is a cohesive unit. A significant contrast to the animosity they return to. Just before the Titans' first game, Boone is informed that if he loses a single game, the school board tends to fire him and replace him with Yost. However, the team stays unified through various hardships and betrayals and is undefeated through the season, going into the state championship. Unfortunately, Gary Bertier, one of the team captains, is severely injured in a car accident and is paralyzed from the waist down. Unable to play, he watches his teammates from his hospital bed. The Titans struggle against their opponents, but rally themselves during halftime, refusing to give up their perfect record. They win the game with a last-second play and remain undefeated. Ten years later, the team gathers to attend Gary's funeral. The credits roll and record where these players are as of filming. I think this is the most based-on-a-true-film-y film of the ones we've watched so far. Yes. Like Others have drawn from reality, but this one is I think, the first that has the whole, like, where-are-they-now thing. It definitely has a much more biopic-y feel yes. than either Cool Runnings or Eddie the Eagle do. Mm-hmm. I think part of that comes from it's dealing with much more serious subject matter. Right. It needs to do that in order to have that sort of street cred. And I think it also is taking itself more seriously than Eddie the Eagle or Cool Runnings did. Definitely. The way I described it was that it kind of feels like a two and a half hour long army recruitment ad. A little bit. At least... The first act especially. The latter bits aren't as much, but there's definitely that these like swelling orchestral bits and teams in very organized groups. We have talked about it being based on true story. I would be remiss if I did not mention that literally the day of our watching of this film was reported that Bill Yost unfortunately passed away at the age of 94. Mm-hmm. So this is unfortunately a timely recording. Also, I want to point out that when we talk about the characters in this film, we're talking about the characters as they're presented by the film, not the actual people. So if we talk about, like, our problem with toxic masculinity or the weird gay subtext, we mean only for the people in the film and and not the real-life people. Yes. With that out of the way, do you want to dive into the toxic masculinity, kind of get that out of the way first? Well, we can start there. We can start with the gay subtext, or we can start with the racism. Well, I don't want to start with the racism. That sounds scary. So let's talk about the gay subtext, of which there is a lot. Part of it is just that you have a film with a lot of male characters who spend much of the film not interacting with women. So all of their significant relationships and intense scenes are between men. So you have that inherent 
sort of homoeroticism that just kind of blossoms out of that. Yeah, and you get that often in sports films, especially something like football that has this very quote-unquote masculine energy to it. But even then, there are degrees of it. I, like, the first few glimpses of it that we get is when Ronnie Bass is introduced as a character during their training camp. He's from California. He has very long hair, especially compared to all of these Virginia boys. Mm-hmm. And Gary makes a fruitcake comment about it. And later on, after Ronnie is forced to cut his hair to join the team... He confronts Gary in the locker room and kisses him. Mm-hmm. It's not great and isn't really resolved, especially since Gary seems to be kind of cool with him not much later. And unfortunately, Robbie's played by Kit Pardue, and so a narrative in which Kit Pardue has a sexual misconduct with a co-worker has not aged super well. Yeah. But on a lighter note, Gary and Julius have a very heated rivalry that turns to a very strong bond of friendship to the point where Gary and his girlfriend wind up breaking up because she can't deal with him being friends with black people. And by the time that Gary is at his lowest point when he's in the hospital, he only wants to see Julius. And the dialogue is doing it no favors for seeming like heterosexual male bonding. You're going to move out the same neighborhood together. You get old. Mm-hmm. Don't get fat. It ain't gonna be all this black white between us. Yeah, and I'm always very leery of reading too much into close male friendships in films. I understand that men who love men want to be able to see themselves, mm-hmm. and I get that. But I, there's also, as a cishet guy, I also want to be able to see non-toxic portrayals of male friendship on screen. Finding a balance is also important. Right. But... Here, even I am reading Gary and Julius as very homoerotic, especially if you compare the way their friendship is treated as opposed to the way Louis and Rev's friendship is treated in the exact same film. It's very, very different. Both of those are close friendships, but one it has much more of this sexual tension component. Mm-hmm. Where Louie and Rev have this, like, fun bro thing going on. Like, they definitely seem more like people who found out they have common interests and enjoy hanging out with each other in a, in a casual way. Mm-hmm. Oh, me and Rev both think on the temptation. Oh, yeah? I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. Just to kind of give some levity, let's talk about Hayden Panettiere, who is amazing in this movie. A very young Hayden Panettiere plays Cheryl Yost, Bill Yost's daughter, and she is just taking Tomboy and turning it up to 11. She's a football hooligan who's been trapped in the form of a cute blonde nine-year-old and doesn't seem to have realized it. It's been, he did a good job up here. He ran a tough camp from what I can see. Well, I'm very happy to have the approval of a five-year-old. I'm nine and a half, thank you very much. Especially the way it juxtaposes Cheryl with Boone's daughter, Nikki, who is very much a girly girl. There's a few choice lines, like Cheryl is playing basketball and tries to pass Nikki the ball, and she just kind of moves out of the way. It's like, I just did my nails. And they also have a really cute friendship that grows together as Nikki is very uninterested in football and she kind of grows to appreciate a little bit more, I guess, through the sheer gravitational force of Hayden Panettiere's excitement. Mm-hmm. She is much more cartoonish than other characters in this film, to the point where I was comparing her to, like, Charlotte LaBeouf from Princess and the Frog or Angelica from the Rugrats. 
To be fair, that's very often the case with children in films, especially from this era. Oh, sure. But there's a bit where her dad is comforting her after a game that- I know how much it meant to you. I don't lie. I wanted the Hall of Fame real bad. And she's brokenhearted that that's not happening. The scene is just fine, but it is weird that this character is so invested to the point of weeping about it. I'm not complaining. I love her. She's just a really weird character. Yeah. Also, Cheryl and Nikki, their inclusion in the film actually allows the film to pass the Bechdel test. Which is pretty great in a very man-heavy movie. Yes. On the flip side, dealing with how this film portrays relationships between men, unfortunately, Boone's coaching style is very heavy with toxic masculinity. It is very much just tearing down these players... Lots of talk about anger, aggression. You need a water break. Water is for cowards. Water makes you weak. Boy, you must be outside your mind. We are going to do up-downs until Blue is no longer tired and thirsty. And there are points where Yost is trying to push back against that, but it never really goes anywhere. I guess the film on some level is trying to frame it, at least during the training camp portion, during the first act, of Boone realizes that he needs to give his black and white players a common enemy so that they can bond together against it, and that enemy kind of has to be him. I mean, this is functionally how boot camp works in the military, and uh, Coach Yossi even talks about how they're not Marines. Coach, it's a high school football team. We're not the Marines here. When people experience a shared trauma together, they bond over it. And so by literally traumatizing the kids, he forms them into a stronger team, which is really fucked up. But the film portrays it as this kind of noble thing that these boys are going through. And I'm like, hmm, hmm, no, no, this shouldn't happen. It's high school football. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the perspectives about football and about how to treat the players as you're coaching and what it takes to succeed in a sport like football. All those perspectives that the film shows off are very real perspectives that are on the football fields every single year. Yeah. The complicated relationship between football and toxic masculinity is too much to unpack here, but also I think the film celebrates that more than is healthy and more than I'm comfortable with. Yeah. It's also just a huge... Uh, change of pace from all the other coaches that we've seen so far in the films that we've watched. Mm -hmm. I mean, even like Bronson Perry, who is probably not the best coach and definitely has some issues with toxic masculinity, is not traumatizing Eddie as he's going through his ski jump training. Right. And admittedly, he wasn't so much hired to be a coach by somebody who had governing power as Eddie just bothered him until he was like, fine. The closest analog as far as coaching goes that we've seen in our bracket are coming from people like Big Red and the choreographer from Bring It On. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it does work because they all like succeed as a team, mm -hmm. but... Although to a certain extent, the film defeats its own message. There's this really good line from Julius that he delivers to Gary uh, when they're talking about Julius's very selfish performance on the field. That's the worst attitude I ever heard. And Julius says... Attitude reflect leadership, Captain. It's a really great line, and it's very poignant, and Gary really does take that to heart. Mm -hmm. 
But unfortunately, that criticism could definitely be applied to Coach Boone, but the film doesn't seem interested in doing so. Right, which makes me think the film thinks that he's doing a good job. Mm -hmm. And that scene is really good. And I wish that had led into a deeper exploration of how Coach Boone's techniques will get you some of the way, but not enough of the Mm way. Yeah. Coach Boone's actions also led to another thing that I noticed about the film is that they often use music to kind of soften what's actually happening on screen. Like there's one point where Coach Boone wakes up the team for a 3 a.m. march over to where Gettysburg was fought so he can deliver this very inspiring speech in the morning fog. But the music that they're playing over it is very upbeat, you know, has some spring to it. And he's like one step away from leading them on a death march. Yeah. During the first act where they're being put through hell or some of the scenes of the racial tension going on in Alexandria, they've got what feels like very inappropriate music over top of that. Yeah. It's kind of the Suicide Squad approach of getting like popular songs of the era. Mm -hmm. And you're reacting more so to the songs than opposed to what's happening on screen. A little bit. Which is a pity because some of the musical stylings of the film are great. There is an arc to who is or is not joining in on diegetic singing. A lot of the black characters will start singing because they want to, and who does or does not join in or who does or does not stop them is a good thing to follow for where the characters are. Mm -hmm. That's true, although I do have a few issues with it, and the film even kind of brings it up on its own. So the character Blue kind of tries to get a sing-along going on the bus as they're heading to training camp. And Julius, like, tells him to... Blue, shut up. I don't want to see your smile and shuffling and hear all your mystery show singing on this bus. And to a certain extent, a lot of the stuff that's going on can kind of be construed as minstrelly, trying to break the tension with all these white people by being jovial and musical and entertaining them. But that doesn't stop the film from keep on using those musical tropes. I hear we're coming from with that. I kind of read that scene a little bit differently. I read it more as him being worried about like the respectability politics of it all. And that that was meant to be perceived as kind of a negative scene for him. That they're setting him up as a loner who is more concerned about appeasement than self-expression. Except that he literally tells Gary to shut up too, not two seconds later. Not that bright. You shut up too. Yes. It's difficult for me to read that in a respectability politics appeasement way when he is... Telling the head white dude to shut up too? Yeah, but I think it's specifically that he's, um, I can't articulate it. Fuck it, I'll move on. Okay. Like, I'm not saying your read is invalid. I'm just saying I can't read it that way because this is how I read it. No, I get it. There's more to it, but I can't figure out how to phrase it right, so I'm just not going to bother. Fair enough. Where do we want to go from here? I mean, I guess the most reasonable place to get into is, is the race stuff that this film is interacting with. Yeah. Whenever you're dealing with a film that is about racism, especially, you know, something produced by the Walt Disney Company, there's going to be issues just in of the fact that it's not being produced by the people who are experiencing said racism. And the line between showing the historical truth of racism and regurgitating racist attitudes is kind of thin. Yeah, The racism in this film oscillates between cartoonish and way too real. Towards the beginning of the film, Cheryl Yost is very upset that a black man is taking her daddy's job. You can't just walk in here and take my daddy's job away! And I'm just like, 
uh, the conversation hasn't changed at all. Oh. And there are a lot of situations where the racism being cartoonish and too real are kind of both at the same time just because of how cartoonish racism can be. And I know we're saying cartoonish, and I know that racism is also deadly serious. I don't want to, like, make light of that, but... Yeah. yeah, but there's also an inherent absurdity of racism. Is It's fucking dumb. Yes. <laughs> it deserves to be mocked. That isn't to say that it doesn't have real-world horrifying effects. Right. And the film is definitely trying to comment on those things. And definitely trying to have a message about coming together and looking past our differences and all that jazz. Yeah. yeah. Like, as a white person, it's not really my place to comment on how well the deep film sure, deals sure. with racism. I would say that it deals with racism about as well as most major Hollywood films, with the exception of something like Green Book. It's not as bad as Green Book. I'm comfortable saying that. I would probably put it somewhere in that in that middle zone where a lot of these things fall, in that it is not as bad as Green Book and not as good as Black Panther. One thing I, I do feel comfortable commenting on as someone who does camera work, about 10 minutes into the film, I'm like, hmm... This movie has a white cinematographer, doesn't it? And then I looked it up and it sure does. That's Philip Rousselot, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, who started doing camera work for films before the events of this movie took place. So I guess he'd be kind of set in his ways, but because he doesn't know how to light black skin, a lot of the black actors, especially ones with darker skin, get very flattened by the camera, especially in daylight scenes or scenes where they're calibrating the cameras to show black and white characters. There's a lot of really interesting stuff to read about film and filming black actors or black people in general and how you have to change the lighting for that and the physics of light and all that and i'm super into a lot of that and i don't think this cinematographer was because a lot of the black actors don't look that well on the film yeah there are certain scenes where it's more noticeable than others and it's it doesn't make the film unwatchable i've definitely seen worse when it comes to lighting actors of color but it's not great right and I care more here because this is specifically a film about black and white relations where the camera work itself has a white gaze. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'll, I'll pivot to this bit. Louis Lassick is a sweetie. He's kind of the Sam Tarley of the film. Yeah, he is one of the first white players to just not give a shit about having an integrated team and just being completely okay with it. Yeah, like he doesn't have fatness as a like huge problem for him as a character. Yeah, his... Size never comes up, partially for the fact that his side is actually beneficial as a football player, but they set his arc of the film as he feels stupid. He feels like he's... I'm white trash. I, I ain't gonna get no C-plus grades. I'm just down home, no good, never going to no college, white trash, man. At the beginning of the film, Coach Boone asks him if he intends to go to college. He's like, I'm not smart enough for that. And his arc is, by the end of the film, he is accepted into college. Yeah, it's a really sweet arc, and I am always a sucker for characters wanting to do better academically. That mm -hmm. always gets me. Mm -hmm. Some really good scenes there. It's him, Ronnie, because he's from California, and then Ryan Gosling, who seems just constantly bemused to be in this film. He doesn't seem to mind what's happening, or, or care, really. He doesn't. I'm not sure if he was cast in the film, or he just sort of walked onto the set. I don't know. I think Gary kind of warms up to the team before Alan does. Because mm. unfortunately, Alan, for a lot of the training camp, is hanging around with Ray, who is the token racist character. 
But Ray is the character who never comes around and continues to be racist and eventually loses his place on the team because his best friend Gary's like, I know that Ray missed that block on purpose. Sometimes you just got to cut a man loose. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more we could say about Room of the Titans, but we're going to jump over to Bennett like Beckham. Sounds like a plan. So Bennett like Beckham. Jess Minder, Jess, Bamra, should be helping her sister get ready for her wedding, but all she wants to do is play football. When Juliet Paxton sees her playing in a park, she convinces Jess to try out for the local women's team. She makes it in and does well, bonding with Juliet over their conservative parents and with Joe, the dishy coach. When Jess's parents find out, they ban her from playing, despite Joe's best protestations. Mr. Bamra was kicked off of a cricket team in his youth, and he never really recovered emotionally. Jess starts sneaking around so she can play. At an away game in Germany, she nearly kisses Joe to the eye of Juliet. On her sister's wedding day, Mr. Bamra sees how sad she is and tells her to just go play in the finals. She makes up with Juliet and they win the game, impressing a talent scout and earning scholarships to play football professionally in America. Their parents see them off, trying to be as supportive as they can, and Mr. Bamra goes back to playing cricket. A few other things happen and then there's some kind of wacky misunderstandings and gay drama, but it isn't vital to understanding the rough outline of the film. and. I think the film's twists and turns are more fun to watch than to talk about. So if you haven't seen it, definitely go watch them and enjoy all the wacky shenanigans. I will say, I didn't realize until you reading your summary that all three of our main characters have J first names. Yeah, I really hate it. It's going to be very confusing. I don't like it. I don't know why this is a thing. Which is why I'm going to refer to Juliet Jules as Kira Knightley through this whole thing. Just to make things simpler. Surprise, she's played by Kira Knightley. You like pain? wearing a corset. And then we also have Armando Nagra as Jess Minder. Mm-hmm. Who's doing great. Yeah. She's excellent. This is right before she was cast on ER. Look, I'm a doctor. I- and I'm single. All I have is Project Runway. I'm definitely showing my age with that reference. <laughs> right. A lot of the actors in here are not well known because they're not white and I'm sad because most of the actors are doing a really good job. That is honestly one of the things that this film has in common is... There's a lot of star power here that was used right before they blew up. Like, you have Ryan Gosling, Donald Faison, Hayden Panettiere in Remember the Titans, and then you have Parminder Nagra, Kira Knightley, a few other people as well. We should point out for those who don't know, Hayden Panettiere is probably most well-known for being Claire from Heroes. Yes. Save the cheerleader, save the world! But, back over to Bennett Lake Beckham. Mm -hmm. One thing I did notice, and it's weird because I'm not knowledgeable enough to describe why it's the case, but I was definitely able to pick up that this is very distinctive British camera work as opposed to American camera work. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that that's partially due to the very small budget that this film has. It's only six million. Mm -hmm. And in general, the much smaller budgets that UK productions work with. But it was surprising to me how distinctive that sort of camera work is. You have to have watched enough, especially enough from this time period to recognize it. But once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. We talked about how it looks like it's shot on an iPhone, or rather like it's shot by someone with an iPhone. Not necessarily iPhone quality or lighting or whatnot, but the shakiness, the close-upness, the... Yeah, everything feels a little claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of it's shot on location as opposed to like building a set for things. Mm-hmm. Which added to the reality of the film, to be honest. Like, especially when they're playing football in a field in England and you can see, like, bits of London just in the background. 
I will say that while we're here, if I didn't know better, this film would read as a parody of UK culture. I mean, I think on a certain level it is. It is definitely somewhat camp. It is not as camp as something like... Spice World? (laughs) Wow. Okay. I was going to say Rocky Horror Picture Show, but I guess you're the gay one now. (laughs) I mean, Spice World's definitely more relevant here. That's true. They do, in fact, reference several of the Spice Girls, and they use at least one of the Spice Girls songs in the film. I mean, one of the Spice Girls appears in this film. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, she's married to David Beckham. She's not in her Spice Sona, so I forgot that was her. (laughs) For those who aren't in the know about this, like me, who doesn't know these things, Bennett Beckham is a reference to David Beckham, who was a footballer who was really well known for being able to kick the ball in a way that formed an arc, which allowed him to get around people who were between him and the goal. And is also reference to the idea of bending both literal rules of your parents and also the general hidden rules of society and doing things that are outside of your assigned gender roles, mm-hmm. as Kira Knightley and Jess and her gay friend Tony, who I didn't mention, do. Mm-hmm. And I guess Joe, who has some tragic backstory stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's Irish and has daddy issues, which that's almost a trope at this point. Yes. I wanted to show him I wasn't soft, so I tried to play injured. I was a bit of a bastard anyway. You shouldn't say that about your dad. You don't know my dad. Well, Irish daddy issues and an old wound that has made him the way he is. <laughs> I, uh. I think the only reason we don't see him like at a bar doing shots, explaining a tragic backstory, is because all the characters are too young to be at a bar. Although they do go to a club at one point, so I guess never mind. Yeah, but that's Germany. Oh yeah, that's true. Everything's legal in Germany. <laughs> but speaking of camp, we talked while we were watching about how the writing gets better halfway through. Yeah, the dialogue in the front half of the film feels just super campy and contrived. Maybe that's partially just we're dealing with a lot of uh, just a sister Pinky and her friends who are a little on the vapid side. Mm -hmm. And they're throwing around a lot of slang. And because they're kind of supposed to be foils to what Jess wants, they're a little slanderized. Yeah. And as we get into more of Jess's actual plot and start meeting the people on her team... The dialogue becomes less exaggerated. Yeah. A comparison I want to draw, even though this isn't technically a gay movie because none of the protagonists are gay, it still fits into that general sphere. Kind of like how the Juggernaut isn't technically an X-Men, but he's still in the the X-Men sphere of Marvel Comics. Sure. And a lot of gay movies, especially gay movies from like this decade and the following decade, had this thing where they all felt like they were the first people to ever bring up some of the arguments they're making. Like, the amount of movies from this time here that stop the plot to talk about how, well, in the Bible, also, shellfish is forbidden, so you're all wrong, Christians. What fools you are. (laughs) Ha ha, gotcha. In a way that makes it seem like they don't realize they're not the first people to bring that up. And this film has a lot of that kind of stuff with some of these issues of gender and race and sexism. Mm -hmm. It's very on the nose in ways that I'm sure are important for people who are hearing it for the first time, but feel a bit hackneyed if you're not. Mm. And also just, we're also nearly 20 years removed from the release of this film. Things have changed a little bit. Right. One thing I will say that was kind of difficult for me to suspend my disbelief for the film is this dream of going to America to play football. And I do not want to denigrate U.S. women's soccer team because they are great, especially with Mia Hamm, who they actually have some Mia Hamm posters in the film in Juliet's room, which is really cool. But it's weird to me that they both want to go to the United States. This country is probably the only country in the world where football is not a big deal. 
I feel like there's a certain element of like there are no cats in America going on. Yeah. While I agree that viewing America as an idealistic land of opportunity is maybe not the most realistic thing, I can also accept what these characters think it is. Yeah. Part of it is that for anyone else watching this film, especially at the time, I'm sure that seems believable. It's just that as someone who grew up in the United States during that time period, football is not big. Football still is not big. Yeah. At least compared to all of the other sports that are big in the U.S. I don't know. The U.S. might be just big enough on sports in general that there's still room. Yeah. It's clear to me having watched this a few times, but I think the film could do a better job of either making it clear or drawing the subtext deeper, that going to America is also a way for them to get out of their family situations. Their family situations do improve over the course of the film, but at the start, they're both trying to get out from under very conservative mothers. Mm -hmm. So playing football in America is the text. The freedom of not being around our parents is the subtext. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go ahead and get into those parents? We could talk about the bombers who are complex and interesting and nuanced, but I want to just open with Karen Knightley's mom, who is amazing and is probably the most parodic part of this film. Yeah, Juliet Stevenson as Paula Paxton is having a very good time. Yeah, she feels like every conservative middle-aged woman in a British comedy I've ever seen. She has the best line of the film. Also, there's a bit where, for reasons, Jess is wearing some shoes that Kira Knightley borrowed from her mom's closet. And because of wacky misunderstandings, Paula Paxton thinks that her daughter is lesbians with Jess. So she rushes up to her at Jess's sister's wedding and declares, Get your lesbian feet out of my shoes! That line is great and needs to be used more in things. We as meme culture have forgotten that line and we need to bring it back. I will have her say it's very weird how much of a turn there is with Juliet's mom. When she jumps to the conclusion that Juliet is a lesbian and has specifically broken up with Jess and that's why she's been the way she has even though it is actually due to Jess almost kissing Joe in Germany. She seems really supportive of her lifestyle, but then when she thinks that Jess and Juliet have gotten back together after their big game, she is very, very upset about it. I get where coming from, and I agree that, that her characterization does feel a little bit sporadic, but I think that in that case, it's, I love my daughter, and she's become a thing I don't approve of, but when she thinks that Jess and Juliet had a breakup, now there's someone who is an enemy she needs to protect her daughter from, mm -hmm. and her maternal instincts are slightly above her homophobia, mm -hmm. by a smidge. And the mom is definitely trying to be supportive of her daughter. She does have a bit where she is trying to learn how football works, because she realizes that Kira Knightley is not backing down from this, so... She's like, well, I love my daughter. I'm going to learn about this, even if I don't approve of it. Now, juxtaposing Jules' problematic parent with Jess's parents is very interesting. Unfortunately, we still have Jess's mom, who is very one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. A lot of the parental growth that we see from the Bamras comes from Mr. Bamra. Mm -hmm. And his story about the hurt that he felt from the racism and getting kicked out of his cricket club is really compelling and really heartfelt and you understand why he is hesitant to let Jess do what she wants to do because he doesn't want her to feel that pain because he kind of still hasn't dealt with it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pathos there and his growth and realizing that by stopping Jess from playing football, he's 
making her go through what he went through and that's not okay and he's going to do something different because he wants her to be happy where he could it's a really like good arc and growth Mm -hmm. like his realization that and those bloody english cricket players threw me out of their club like a dog i never complained on the contrary i vowed that i will never play again who suffered me but i don't want jesse to suffer to see that arc come full circle not only letting jess play football and letting her go off to america but also at the end of the film, playing cricket again. It's just really, really good. It's a very small arc, but it's very solid. Mm-hmm. And while I agree that her mom is kind of cartoonish, I also kind of love her. Her cartoonishness is still written in funny ways that make her an enjoyable character. And I would absolutely love to see a drag queen do a performance based on this character at some point. She's divorced, that's what she is. Cast off after three years of being married to a white boy with blue hair. I her poor mother. We've had a lot of praise for this film for the most part. Unfortunately, this film has some stumbling blocks when it comes to being a sports movie. A lot of the games are not very well shot and they're kind of just a slew of scenes. And even those scenes of playing aren't that great. The final match is a little bit better than most of them, but it's still definitely the weakest camera work we've seen during a competition in any of the other films we've seen yeah which again at low budget but yeah i could also see an argument that this isn't necessarily a sports film it's a romantic comedy that has sports in it i definitely think of it as a sports film i mean we're put on the sports film bracket so we kind of have to but i can see how maybe the directors didn't necessarily think of the football as the main focus in the way that for cool runnings the bobsledding was the main focus yeah And that's fair. There's a lot of other compelling stuff going on with Bendit Like Beckham. Although, it's interesting that you bring up the point, like, viewing this as a romantic comedy that happens to have sports in it. To a certain extent, Wimbledon is in a similar position. So I'm interested to kind of see how that does with the filming of the tennis matches in comparison to this. Right. Although I think you wouldn't necessarily say the same for Bring It On, which is also kind of a, like, a teen rom-com really more than a romantic comedy but i think it does have a lot of care and attention put into the filming of the cheerleading exactly yeah these things are not mutually exclusive is what i'm saying yes yeah however while it does somewhat fail in terms of presenting the matches it does have a really good arc for the team when jess first joins the team there are some not great questions and comments thrown around relating to her as a punjabi person But by the end of the film, after they won the game, the team is helping her get dressed for the wedding. And it's a really nice, small little visual arc. I do really like that even though Jess comes from a very conservative Sikh family, that all of her teammates and her coach are very respectful of their family and their customs. Whenever Joe is interacting with them and trying to get them to uh, approve of what Jess is trying to do. He's always incredibly respectful and he is coming from this place of empathy and understanding. I really appreciate that. I mostly agree. However, Joe does have that line where he talks about how... Jess, I'm Irish. Of course I'd understand what that feels like. I don't know the complexities of being of different backgrounds in the British Isles to comment on the validity of that statement. It feels a little hollow to me, but also I grant that he probably has faced a decent amount of oppression, so it might have been more of a case of right emotions, wrong valuation. Yeah, 
both Ireland and India do have a history of British colonialism. And I, I can definitely understand how those colonial ties are going to be stronger and how it could cause more of an issue for Joe. But it's difficult for me as an American to perceive that. Because when people here talk about the hardships that Irish immigrants faced in comparison to people of color and the slave trade, it's always full of bullshit. Yeah. So I definitely agree with you on that, but all of Joe's direct interactions with the Bamras, I feel, are really good. Yeah. Listeners in the UK, tell us how valid is it for an Irish person to be like, I am also oppressed in the way that you as a Punjabi person are. I think a little bit stronger is Tony, the gay best friend, and his I'm into men, and that is comparable, though not the same as you dating outside of your race. We should work together as people who want non-traditional family structures. I get that. I am really frustrated that they never say the word gay. Yes. Literally, the closest they get is... No, Jess. I really like Beckham. It's 2002. Yeah. There's a line in this movie, get your lesbian feet out of my shoes. Just say gay. It's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd argue this film is less good about portraying queer issues than Bring It On, which came out two years before. Although, on the flip side, Keira Knightley has a powerful gay energy in this movie that offsets that a little bit for me, even if it's not actually valid for it to do so. I'm not sure which story is more clearly foisted upon us due to compulsory heterosexuality, Jess and Joe as opposed to Jess and Juliet, or Torrance and Cliff as opposed to Torrance and Missy. Both of these films feel like they'd be more satisfying if there was a queer ending, but it was a naughty, so that wasn't going to happen yet. I will say, I think that Bennett like Beckham feels more genuine, even if it is somewhat more cartoonish in its portrayal of race issues because it has actual creators of color as opposed to white creators telling stories about race. And so if that was how we're judging these, I would go more towards Bennett like Beckham. But we have other qualifiers that we use, like what has the better training montage and what has the better training gimmick. Bennett like Beckham doesn't really have a training gimmick, unfortunately. I mean, to a certain extent, neither does... Remember the Titans, unless you want to think of racism as a training gimmick. Oh, I was going to say waking up at 3am to hear a speech about the Battle of Gettysburg as a training gimmick. Okay, yeah. Yeah, which, (laughs) wow, (laughs) what an unusual thing to have happen. Mm -hmm. As ridiculous as that speech is, I do like a portion of it where Boone is is talking about how the Battle of Gettysburg, you had 50,000 men died right here on this field fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves today Mm -hmm. i really do appreciate that lines like things have gotten different they haven't necessarily gotten better yeah the speech is very good however telling someone about it divorced of context and tone and progress of the film it feels more wacky than it actually is yes training Mm -hmm. montages i think i'm also gonna have to give this to remember the titans specifically because it puts more emphasis on filming the sports well than Bend It Like Beckham does, and the training montages that they do have there feel more dynamic. Mm -hmm. Bend It Like Beckham's training montages tend to be more just the characters playing football while a not very relevant pop song plays. If we were able to include the montage of the team helping just get dressed for the wedding... Like, I think that is better than any of the training montages in Remember the Titans from a narrative perspective, but we're specifically talking about sports montages. 
Yeah. And I think because it wins both those categories, I'm going to move on River of the Titans this week. I could go either way with what is a better film, depending on what the qualifiers are. But I think River of the Titans is a better sports movie than Bennett Lake Beckham is. I would agree with you that it's a better sports movie. Also, just on a technical level, it is better than Bend It Like Beckham, mostly due to its budget as opposed to anything else. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that Remember the Titans is devoid of problems, and it even fails in areas where Bend It Like Beckham succeeds. We were talking about how the race issues in Bend It Like Beckham definitely feel better handled than they do in Remember the Titans. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like there's more to unpack there, whereas yes. I'm not sure how much we, more we can say about Bennett like Beckham apart from just how pleasant and fun it is to watch. Well, it looks like Remember the Titans is going to continue to be remembered. And Bennett like Beckham is not getting that scholarship. That said, of these two, I think I might also recommend watching Bennett like Beckham over watching Remember the Titans because Remember the Titans is a long, emotionally grueling film, whereas Bennett like Beckham is a breezy film. Very fun, very watchable. It's definitely a feel-good movie you can watch with your family. Mm-hmm. We also have a very drastic shift in tone next week. So next week we have Kingpin, our bowling film, starring Woody Harrelson and Randy Quaid. Isn't that rated R? Yes. Bill Murray's a villain. Gods, I haven't seen it. So you could be making all of this up and I would believe you implicitly. Interestingly enough, Bill Murray also appears in the other film that uh, we'll be watching next week, Space Jam. I'm not sure what's going to be harder to compare, this week or, or next week. Next week is going to be so drastically different than anything we've done so far in this bracket. But luckily we're returning to a sci-fi fantasy narrative at last, so <laughs> there's something there. We're used to that. We're talking about how... Because these films are all set in ostensibly our world, there isn't much to... Unpack as far as world building? Yeah, like the world building is just like London or whatever. Mm -hmm. A fantasy land that I don't believe in. Um, You've been there! (laughs) There's photographic evidence! I saw a very odd production of In the Heights, which is a very good musical that is weird when it has British accents. But we're not talking about In the Heights, we're going to be talking about Space Jam and Kingpin. We hope you join us next week. If you want to uh, make sure to be informed as soon as that episode goes live, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.